Welcome back to Rise and Rouse. I'm your host, Erin Allgood, social impact strategist and plant mom. Today's conversation takes a slightly different turn, and I'm so excited for you to hear it. My guests are Perry Dahl and Nicole Meyer, two dedicated and hardworking changemakers and mothers. Perry joins us from Tuckwilla, Washington, where she builds community with a special eye towards the intersections of shame in both structural and embodied white supremacy. Nicole lives in Vermont and runs the state's Hunter Education Program, bringing her love of nature and equity together. Perry and Nicole openly share the struggles and joys of parenting, what that has taught them about being effective and fair leaders, and how they make sense of the many demands placed on mothers. Whether you're a parent or not, I hope you take the time to listen to this one. It's vulnerable and personal which is what we're all about here at Rise and Rouse. I am so excited to have Perry Dahl and Nicole Meyer here today with me on the Rise and Rouse podcast. So we all met through the University of Vermont Leadership for Sustainability program, uh, where we were all doing our master's degree. Perry is an amazing mother in the line of matriarchs who has thrived in the face of anti-Semitism. She is a community capacity builder and ideas connector in Tukwila, Washington. Perry's particular area of interest is in the intersections of shame in both structural and embodied white supremacy. Nicole runs the Hunter Education Program in Vermont, and as a full-time mom and state employee, she strives to advance social justice initiatives in all aspects of her life. She's an aspiring community builder and people connector, and when she isn't spending time outside, she can be found knitting, reading, cleaning up, sneaky nighttime toddler vomit, (laughs) trying to convince her three-year-old to put on some clothes. So I want to give you both an opportunity just to share a little bit more about yourselves and just, I know that was just a little bit of a snippet, but love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you've arrived, I guess, to this place in life. Uh, Thanks for the intro, Erin. I, yeah, I I live in Vermont. I've been living in uh, Vermont for about, this is actually August uh, 2023 marks 10 years of me living in Vermont, which is wild when you consider I was born and raised on Long Island, New York, and and have only ever lived there until I moved to Vermont in 2013. Um, my love of the outdoors was instilled upon me from my, my dad, my grandfather, um, my family, uh, and also being like kicked out of the house in the summer to like just go be play outside. Um, and then I, uh, I went to college Um, People told me I was smart. uh, And so I thought that meant that like I should be a doctor. And then I was like, oh, I'm not smart enough to be a doctor when I started receiving some of my grades in organic chemistry. And when my professors goes to me, oh, yeah, you can make a job out of working in the outdoors. And I was like, really? No way. So I majored in uh, biology, got my first job out of college, walking on a beach and looking at birds which like dream job. And I've been working in the outdoor field ever since I, I teach, I run the day-to-day operations of our hunter education program here in Vermont. Um, and I come from a non-hunting family and I myself identify as a super liberal person, but I use a gun in the woods pretty regularly. And I teach people how to use firearms in a responsible, practical real, ethical, lawful manner. And a lot of this work that I do, actually, I've been doing better, I think, since becoming a parent, because a lot of my parenting strategies that I use on my child 
I also use when dealing with the general public and dealing with adults in the workplace and (laughs) moving forward things like liberation and working on like anti-racism and accessibility. And I'm, I'm on our department's uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. I'm one of the founding members of that. And um, being on that committee has also been, it, it kind of like feeds into each other, right, with parenting and, and, and the diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice work. Um, so it's really interesting to see those kind of parallels between the professional world, I guess you could say, and, and being a parent. When, you're, when your toddler is going to have a meltdown or when a person, a human being is having a meltdown in front of you at work, they look different, but it's the same. You acknowledge <laughs> the hurt, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I understand this is a difficult thing. You speak to the boundary, but we are not going to be wielding firearms in an unsafe way today. This is amazing. <laughs> Four is a pretty magical age because my kid, my four-year-old was like, you know, mommy, maybe means yes. (laughs) (laughs) Figured out. She was like, when you say maybe, you mean yes. Yes, Libby. She's so smart. (laughs) So, so Perry, let's, let's talk a little bit about your background. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm, I'm in a process right now of kind of like redefining my sense of worth and like a very anti-capitalist way because the majority of the work that I do is like unpaid labor and so like to define myself around my paid labor feels disingenuous to like where I am in my life and how I'm trying to like redefine worth but like I come from a background of you know place-based education whether it's you know in urban settings rural settings in Vermont the pandemic was a really interesting time and, and like it was a real paradigm shift for me particularly. So, you know, I came about this master's program that we all were a part of thinking like, oh, I'm going to start my own like food-based nonprofit. It's going to be an education nonprofit, like, and learn through the process that that was kind of just continuing to perpetuate this white savior mentality of telling communities that I know what's best for them and, that really quickly shifted. And also my entire worldview shifted as a part of our master's program, which I know is not unique to me. I know that um, that was the case for many folks. So during the pandemic, I quit my job to finish my master's degree. I quit my job because I was pregnant with my second child and wanted to do some deep dives into thinking about what embodied white supremacy culture really means to me. Um, I'm currently volunteering as the chair of my equity and social justice commission for the city of Tukwila, using my platform as an opportunity to like uplift the voices of the city and provide a microphone for um, this incredible city in which I live that I call home right now. And just, you know, becoming a part of this community and in as many deep ways as I possibly can. And, where I'm invited and yeah, just kind of being a parent in this bananas world, especially as a Jewish parent and parenting kids who are ethnically and culturally Jewish and trying to not pass on the like genetic anxiety that I have. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> how how can I anyway? Yeah, working on that. I'm excited to talk with both of you today too because it's I think there's a lot of what we wanted to we want to dive into is just this the relationships around parenting and like the how you've been navigating as you were saying that like this dystopian hellscape <laughs> that is this world because especially thinking about like so much of what you're doing right now is laying the foundation for the future with with your kids and so like how does that just the, kind of that knowledge and that thought process like what how does that enter into your into how you apply that with the kids well I mean so I think about like all of the education that I've done around um, my learning about how kids learn and think and particularly building relationships with nature and this like prerogative would be like the first thing they get into an introduction to is the rainforest being totally destroyed and it's your job to save the rainforest right but the way that you create stewards is by starting from a place of love and belonging and I think that that's true across the board, right? Love and belonging and a sense of community, regardless of the quote unquote issue, to create a sense of desire to protect and desire to, and a desire to stand up for what the world needs. So the way that looks like, um, is like having a group of friends that look different, sending kids to school with kids who don't necessarily look like them. And that is also, you know, like, I know that that's an immense privilege that we have as a family that has enough means to be able to make those kinds of decisions for our kid, right? For our kids. But it also looks like having positive experiences in nature, having those fundamental experiences, you know, not saying like, it's your job to protect the world, you know, but it comes from a place of like, genuine connection and positive memory. So we take them camping and stuff like that and have a garden. Oh my gosh. Mm. Um, Robin Wall Kimmer in um, Braiding Sweetgrass. One thing I read that book, you know, through a master's program and continued to read it in many iterations. Um, and the one that just like broke me completely open as a parent, what I'm going to cry this podcast. I know it um, like a thousand times, um, but her chapter in which she talked about how important it was for her to create this to help foster a relationship between the earth and her children because it was the mother it was the mother who was going to mother them when she was no longer alive you know and so like how true was that and how beautiful was that to think about you know our earth as you know the mother that will continue mothering our children when we are no longer there in body it's it's real right I mean, I think about it, I think about it similarly in the way that we're introducing, you know, our son to the outdoors is, you know, we try to make it so that he's not afraid of anything, because I think that a lot of times can be such a deterrent. I know it was a big deterrent for me when I was little for, in in some respects, not in many but I know that there are a lot of kids who think that the outdoors is da- is inherently dangerous or is dirty and that it's bad to get dirty. And yeah, that bath, when he gets in there and there's a black ring around the bathtub, it sucks to have to wash it. But I said to his, his teacher texted me a few days ago and said he got really dirty today and sent me a picture of him just covered <laughs> in mud. 
And I said, uh, well, a dirty day is a, is a fun day. So that's, it's a sign of a good day. You know what? I myself have this irrational fear of bugs, which is, I love the outdoors and I am not, I'm not a squeamish person, but bugs just really get me. And I've been, I've been, is another thing that like parenting helps you do. I've been working to get over my own fear of bugs to show him that bugs aren't gross. <laughs> Even though my skin is crawling, <laughs> I'm like, oh, look, it's a, it's a spider. And we like pick up the spider and he goes, oh, hi, spider. And he like gives it a little kiss and then puts it in the grass and says, go home and find your mommy. And I just... I just melt every single time. And I think in that too, right, talking about like anti-racism, passing on anti-racism and and trying to break out of white supremacy culture, it's very similar, right? We're examining our own worldviews and our own values and the way that we move in the world. And every day I'm, I'm thinking to myself, why am I doing this thing this way? Or why, when I walk down the street, do I just say hi to the people who are walking down the street, but I don't say hi to the person who's sitting down in front of a store? And so I think about that for my own self, and I'm working to break those, break that a little bit in myself for my child, but I'm hopeful that it's also genuinely breaking it down for me as well. You know, a few days ago, we were, well, two weeks ago, I guess, we were at a community event and uh, there was a maybe three-year-old there with a walker and Jake pointed, you know, he's three and a half years old, pointed to the kid and said, mom, what's that? What does that kid have? Oh, that kid's got a walker. It's a cool way that helps him move around. Looks like he's having fun. Let's say hi. And we did. And that was it. And that was the whole end of the thing. Because that's all I know about that kid just from looking at him, right? Is that he's using a walker to move. I'm not making any kind of judgment call on the parent or on the kid or what's going on with him or anything like that. I mean, right. It's like it's like things like that. And how we move throughout the world is so impactful on our children. It's more than just our words because they see our movements. They see our faces. They can feel the way that we're feeling. And if I had said something about like, oh no, that kid can't walk or, oh my God, there's a spider here or don't go near that man. He's he's panhandling for money. This is all transferring biases to my kid. Yeah, And I don't want to do that. I want to show them the world as people. And until they do something negative or bad to you, I mean, they're just a person, right? I think for me, like growing up, there were so many things that I heard you know, my parents say that I just never questioned. And then I remember being either in like college or like later in life, like parroting back some of those things and then being like somebody looking at me funny. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. And and it's nothing, you know, like about my parents, like or anything like that. But it was just like things that I had absorbed and never questioned. And so as an adult now, especially going through, I think, our program, like I just question everything. (laughs) Um, that's part of that transformational piece that I've, that I've like carried with me. So for growing up for both of you then, like what were some of the, what are some of the things that 
you've had to break for yourself? I mean, so for me, being Jewish and and part of this program really helped illuminate it for me. And I am nowhere near done with a journey with this, but um, there was this mentality of understanding my identities and various identities, how I walk through the world as a white woman. And I'm also Jewish and thinking, oh, well, I'm Jewish. So therefore, like, I'm persecuted too, right? Like this, like, baloney idea that like, somehow it's a it's a pie and, you know, like your slice means that I don't get as much yada, yada, yada. And that was something that I really had to break down. And also like, so in parenthood, the way that it presents itself is a careful balance between instilling a sense of identity and a sense of self and a sense of connection to community. while at the same time, acknowledging privilege And the ways in which that it can present itself as well. And there were just a lot of inherent biases that I had and still have that I'm illuminating day by day, right? And also, you know, another way in which that sort of like presents itself as a parent and one of the ways in which I'm like very intentionally parenting my children is like with kind of an embodied practice that I learned as a result of completing this master's degree (laughs) was I did a lot of like body embodied practice of like, Oh, where is this feeling sitting within my body? How can I process through this is like sitting with discomfort and being okay with discomfort. Because let me tell you, like as a parent, we're uncomfortable all the time. Like Mm. just too much, too loud, everything. There's just, it's a constant level of discomfort. And so kind of applying the lessons of being able to be okay with being uncomfortable across scenario for crying out loud and like I also like no way do I do this even remotely perfectly right and I think that part of this is like we grew up very differently than we are raising our children the world looks very different how we are raising our children is very different than the way we grew up and so like there are many lessons that can be applied across the way because there are iterations of different generations and like we can see the ways in which like our ancestors come through into our kids yet at the same time, like the fundamental access to different kinds of information, the ways in which we relate to one another um, are inherently different now, but like, there's also a lot of beauty in it. There's my community isn't necessarily limited to just like the people around me, even though we intentionally made the choice, like I intentionally made the choice to move back to Seattle and married someone here and our family is really close to us. And that's really beautiful that we have that support. But like, y'all are my community, right? Like, I don't know how I would parent without being able to parent with Nicole, without Nicole around, you know, just kind of simple things like that, just to be able to have access to the information that we have access to in a very like, democratized way, almost like I, I have access to parenting resources, and it's fundamentally shifted the way that I parent through social media in a way that is very deeply intentional in a way that acknowledges generational trauma and how I am intentionally working through that within myself, like reparenting myself, like no shade to my parents, right? They Mm -hmm. did as best as they possibly could and continue to do as best as they possibly can and are loving, wonderful human beings and our fabulous grandparents. We all 
move through things differently. And so being able to have access to different resources from voices that necessarily I wouldn't have had access to in previous generations allows me to be able to, you know, be a different kind of parent than I would want to be. I mean, granted, like, also like these dividends, who the heck knows how I'm going to fuck up my kids. Like I'm going to, (laughs) at some like I'm going to fuck up my kids in some way, but it'll be a new way, but they will have processed some generational trauma. So, you know, who knows? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're all, we're all going to mess up our kids. That's just, it's just true. There's no way we can't. I think for me, the cycles that I'm breaking, you know, in our house growing up, we were, you know, solidly white upper middle class. And we didn't have, we had the privilege to not have to talk about race. And we really didn't. We really didn't. Um, And I'm trying to be more conscious and cognizant of talking about race with, you know, with Jake, because especially in Vermont, which is one of the whitest states in the country, it is important to be able to have these kinds of discussions around race and why privilege does not have to be a dirty word. If if you had come to my parents and told them when I was a kid and told them that you are privileged because you're white, they would have really resented that. My parents we we talk about this stuff now and like they like told me, "Oh, watch this. Watch the 14th. Watch this great documentary. Ava Dornay. Is that how you say her last name? Eva Duvernay. Yeah. Duvernay. But yeah, we were privileged to not have to talk about race and like, you know, we bought Anti-Racist Baby for Jake, the book, right? You know, and we read it pretty regularly and we talk about like, oh, these people just have different his best friend at school you know, is, is biracial. Uh, You know, he goes to school with kids who don't look like him. He has many friends who don't look like, and that's, that's really good. That's really good for him. And I think we can, you know, we have, I mean, he's three and a half. It's tough to have discussions about anything. That's not, can I play my tablet or can I have ice cream? Um, But (laughs) Like those are his, those are his two big topics, but you know, we try to infuse that in there when we can. Another cycle that I'm trying to break and Perry kind of scratched the surface of it a little bit was around like this idea of I'm not doing everything right. And I do lose my cool sometimes. And Jake asks me, mommy, please don't yell sometimes. Mm-hmm. He's very sensitive to like loud noises too. So mommy, please don't, don't yell. And I mean, I, one thing that I have worked on for myself is my patience. And one of the best things that's helped with my like anxiety and depression and parenting in general has been going on antidepressants has been like a game changer for me. And I'm a lot more patient now than I ever was And I don't snap the way that I used to. But I mean, apologizing to him when I lose my cool. You know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to yell at you like that. Sometimes when I get really angry or frustrated, my body just gets, Mm -hmm. my voice gets really loud and my body gets, gets really tense. And I feel like I have to let it out and I'm sorry. And right now he's not really understanding that, but he'll give me a hug anyway. And I, I think words like that do go pretty far. And recognizing that for myself too, right? 
and showing him like, this is anger. This is frustration. Like showing him, we all have those emotions. Like Perry said earlier, right? We all have emotions and all of our emotions are valid, but we're going to hold the boundary and the actions are not okay. Or, and the actions associated are not okay. Right. Like no hitting, no kicking, no yelling, whatever it is. And like the other big thing that I'm, I think about when I grew up, like gender norms were very highly instituted in my house. So like I had two brothers, but it was always my job to set the table and clean up the table and do like indoor chores. Mm -hmm. And my brothers always did like the outdoor chores, like mowing the lawn and taking out the garbage and I like told my dad that I wanted to mow the lawn and I said, why am I the only one clearing the table? Yeah. Like it's because you're a girl. Like it was, and I'm just like, what? So like Jake vacuums with me. He has a little Dyson vacuum. He helps his dad in the garage. He can wear whatever the hell he wants. He hasn't picked out any dresses yet. (laughs) Maybe he will one day. Dresses are fun. But we're trying not to be such sticklers around gender norms because that is how that is one step toward oppression. That's one step toward patriarchy. Yeah. I think those are like all small things that we can, can do to kind of break those cycles and move us forward as, as a society through parenting. Yeah. That's like one thing that I'm really glad about as who I chose to parent with, right? And who chose me to parent with, right? Is it's really intentional for me of how we raise our girls that they see parents who are full partners, that they see the load shared, that um, that they have models of excellence in every gender expression around them. I think that was something so difficult for me too, because So like speaking to our friendship, Perry, when I was a kid, my mom was a stay at home mom. She did my dad, my dad owns his own business and my mom like did the books for his business and, and, and like that. But she just, she mostly just stayed at home. And, um, I never saw my mom take time for herself and I never saw my mom like go out with friends I never saw her have a friend over. I never saw her do a hobby. She fully immersed herself into her three children, and that was her full, whole identity. And I see her now, and God, my mom is such a fantastic mother. I love her so much. She did such a good job raising us three kids, too. And my dad, too. I mean, they both, they, I have fantastic memories of, of my childhood and now that the three of us are grown adults, now she's taken on the role of caretaker for her father. And it feels very much like this has been her identity for a very long time. And we've had conversations about how important caretaking is, whether it's taking care of children or taking care of your family who's ailing. You know, my grandfather can't take care of himself at this point. Um and luckily, my mom lives across the street from her father. So they, you know, she and my my aunt take care of him. But I, I, I watched that and I and I just thought, man, 
has my mother like lost herself in this because she's so committed to it. And I don't want that for myself. My mom put her, my mom literally put her all into parenting and her all into making sure that we had like our Easter outfits, our Easter baskets were ready. Christmas was beautiful and picture perfect. Right. And, and all the delicious food was on the table for us and all of our, if I forgot my clarinet, she would run up to school and drop it off for me in time for band. Like she was, she was on it and it was more than a full-time job for her. But now I'm just like, well, what happens when you don't have kids to care for anymore? Where are you? And and she and my dad, for to their credit, like they have hobbies that they do together. My dad is still working though. But, you know, I want to model and showcase for my kid a mother who also enjoys her hobbies and doing things on her own that is not connected to her family. And, you know, he's, you know, my kid is allowed to, Jake and Chris, like, will go and play by themselves, have a Jacob daddy day. And, you know, like, those are, those are important things. I joke about, like, self-care, date night, but, like, how you define self-care, like being your own whole self is important. And I think my mom would tell you that she is her whole full self, giving it all to parenting and caretaking. She would tell you that, but that's not me. And I can't do that. (laughs) You know, but here's the thing is like, so we exist in this like cultural scenario in which like the kid still needs to get their clarinet. You still need to make sure that dinner is on the table. And we, yet we also have this like hustle culture where like economically in order to make ends meet, you still have to work. And we've created this consumer culture around self-care when the reality is, is like buying all the face masks, buying all the spa packages and the nail polishes like that doesn't actually fill the need within our culture for community care. Like we are labeling what needs to be community care as self-care, which is bullshit culturally. And like, but now we find ourselves in a situation where as parents, we need to be everything for our kids. And we also need to be everything for ourselves and for our partners. So there's this like, and so like I fight against that because like, I feel it internally of this, like, how do I maintain my sense of self, self, my sense of worth, and also show that to my children. And also they need to be picked up. Like I need to like, all of these different things like still need to happen at the same time. And it's such a challenge, like culturally where we are. And again, this like goes back to like the pandemic put it into really clear focus when people had to care for their kids simultaneously while working and figuring it out. And like the amount of guilt of like, Oh shit, my kid is now on a screen for the very first time, but they have to be because I have to make money. And like, and we're all stressed about this like existential threat of dying, right? Like at any moment, but like that didn't fully disappear. The veil came off culturally and we did Jack about it. Jack, we got checks and that was really helpful for childcare, which is based on the like underpaid labor predominantly of black and brown women who are caring for our children while we work who are being underpaid and yet childcare costs are like, it's 
I, we pay almost $4,000 a month to get our kids in care. And I've told Perry this, like, probably the biggest reason why we're probably not going to have another child is because we just can't, simply can't afford it with childcare. We, childcare costs are outrageous. Yeah. So like, okay, I can, like, I can take myself out and on a date or like go out with a friend, spend some time even, you know, and like, and it's important for my kids to see, you know, me and my husband, you know, love each other, spend time together and also like have our time away from our kids. But like, there's a bigger cultural element to this of like, you can't self-care the systemic problems away. I have been thinking about the fact that since I'm like, since I'm not a mother, like it's, and I never wanted to be. And I think about the fact that like back when I was really having to make some of those decisions, you know, like 10 years ago, it feels like now when I was married and it was like expected of me to just go off and get pregnant and everything. And I remember deciding, like looking exactly at like the scenario that you're describing that we all know and like are so intimately aware of like how fucked up the systems are. And I looked at that and I was like, I don't want any part of this. And I wrestled with it for literally years and years, like to the point where my therapist, who was a man at that time, was like, I don't know if I can like actually help you. (laughs) He's like, because you're struggling so hard with this. And he's like, and I can't relate. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't realize that this was like my kind of like need to try to like understand my aversion to it was so different. And I wonder, I constantly wonder like if I was in a different society, would I actually want to have kids? But I, I saw similarly, like Nicole, my mother, like just never put herself first. So I'm 38 years old. My youngest sister moved out in December. My mother has never had a house without kids in 38 years. And she's like ridiculously excited to be able to like go do things now. And she's like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. We're going to on our like international vacation in a couple of weeks where she's or in a less than that in a week where she's able to like actually she hasn't taken a vacation, like a real vacation longer than two weeks ever, I think, in her entire life. And I just makes me think about how we have how our society has set up this up in a way where we just you can't win. There's like no winning here. And we could actually invest in things like universal childcare, universal pre-K, things like that. Very, very simply, it would have like amazing effects on our economy and amazing effects on people's and day to day lives. It would like bring parity about so much quicker if we were able to tend to some of these like systemic issues, but we won't, we don't have the political will for it. We don't have anyone who's really like, we, we, we look at this problem squarely in the face and just say, oh, can't, can't deal with it. It's too complicated. It's like, is it really though? Is it that complicated? And so then we all have to like individually wrestle with this shit and we all feel alone in it. Like, it's because culturally we undervalue the labor of women. And we undervalue significantly more the labor of black and brown women, just fully and completely. Like if it's viewed as women's work, why would we pay more money for it? That's why like nursing is seen as a woman's work and it's undervalued. Education, undervalued, like care period, right? Elder care and, you know, child care. I had this glimpse into care when my mother was recovering from surgery and she moved in with us so I could help her recover. And my God, 
Like, <laughs> and we're an aging population. We're, an, we're for the first time, the U.S. is aging more than it ever has, you know, and that's kind of the reality because like also like our generation is like, fuck this children. Like there are no support systems. It's too expensive. I can't afford a house. I can't afford childcare. Like why would I have a child? Like, or why would I have more than one child? Right? Like it's because of what we culturally undervalue. And, and you think about who's in leadership positions in the United States, right? Who is in charge of making those decisions? It's our old white president. Any pick one. Right. They're all it's old our, and white, except for it's Obama. our except for <laughs> Barack Obama. It's our who is still old, well, not old, still a man. And who's in Congress and who's in the House of Representatives? Who who make up the the voting bodies, the rulemaking bodies? It's old white men by and large. Yeah, we're getting women, non-binary people, and people of color in, and that's part of the reason why you know Vermont actually just passed this historic childcare legislation. We'll see what actually happens with it. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not too plugged into it, but, but it's taken this long to, to pass anything. And, but we've known since forever that childcare has been an issue and that it's a reason that women are, are dropping out of the workforce or just don't or don't enter the workforce or work reduced hours or get a or master's degree time. and then leave the workforce or get a ma- or just but like Nicole but yeah but like what I'm curious what I will be curious about is like something a conversation you and I have had a lot which is my kid can't go to school today because there isn't mm-hmm. enough staff oh yeah so like regardless of legislation are they doing it and are they paying people better I- that's the thing, Perry. Like, I don't know. Because if they're not, like, who cares? Well, that's there's what I no said. one to staff it. I said to our, I said to our daycare center, I said, "Oh wow, you must be so excited that the the big childcare legislation passed." She's like, "Yeah, we don't really know what it's going to mean for us, though. Like, they're putting money into the system, but is it going to be upgrades to the facility? Is it going to be?" subsidies for parents is it going to be more increased pay for staff like we there's like not it it feels to me like even they don't really know it's an infusion of money which is great but are there going to be enough people I don't know and like I don't know working with kids is tough working with my own kid is tough and I love the shit out of them it's so interesting yeah Yeah. (laughs) I don't know I have to wrap us up. I'm so sad to do that. That's okay. Makes me we can sad. do this for another like two hours we, at least. I feel like well, we, we can. I know we can definitely do it again. Like because I make the rules. It's my podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, the last question I want to like ask both of you, just as we're wrapping up, because it's it's just fun. Is like, what does it mean to give a damn? Like, how are you? How do you both think about that? For me, giving a damn means being intentional, doing the shit when it's hard, and probably be like because it's hard, doing it because it's hard, and and speaking up, just speaking up. That's giving to me. That's that's giving a damn and being intentional, doing it when it's hard and speaking up. Mm. Yeah, um, to me, giving a damn. I love what you said, Nicole, and I like very much feel simpatico with that around what giving a damn means. And I, you know, like 
I agree with the sentiment of like, when it's hard, you still do it. You show up and like being okay with discomfort. And also like, when I think about giving a damn when it applies to parenthood, it's that emotional intelligence. Like, so when on Friday nights, you bless the children for Shabbat and the blessing that I came up with for my children, I think embodies what I think it means to give a damn, which is may you be kind, may you be brave, may you seek justice and peace. Right. That's what I say to my kids every week and then kiss them on their head. And in my mind's eye, like, that's what it means to give a damn. Yeah. This made my heart happy to hear you say that. Can and then they like, they put their little faces like this. They close their little eyes and they're like, mm. yeah, kiss them on their cappies. So to me, that's, that's what it means to give a damn. I'm just so grateful to both of you for taking the time today to do this because I know it's not easy. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm glad too because I think it, I started this podcast because it was a project I wanted to do for myself because I wanted to have these kinds of conversations. It felt like, in the truest sense of like self care, not being bastardized by capitalism, but like to me, it felt like so important to do this to fill up my cup and to be able to like connect with folks like you all like two of you who are like some of my bestest friends and so I'm glad you did this today and I hope it feels the same way for both of you that this was like a good good for the soul kind of conversation hey Erin mm-hmm. and Nicole I love you I love you I love, love both you. of you so much I know that was the first time we even said it this podcast which surprises oh, me I I'm know. surprised um I know but this also, Erin, thank fest. you for like getting out of your yeah. comfort zone of types of conversations. I know that this is not like mm. your huge. And so I appreciate you allowing this platform for us to, you know, talk. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Erin Allgood. It is produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Cleary Morin and Yana Krizanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Rouse wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Rouse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com.